we're going to launch in um, to uh, second in this uh, series of walking in the footsteps of Jesus, in the footsteps of Jesus, learning to walk the way that he did through Mark's gospel. So I wonder this morning, anyway, um, whether or not you read a newspaper regularly. Uh, and if you do, uh, which one do you read? Uh, now, I was thinking about this and I was thinking for the sake of the younger members of the church, um, let me just explain what a newspaper is. It's, it's, it's one of those big fold out multi sheets of paper uh, with photos and writing and printing on them. Uh, maybe you've seen an old person sat in a cafe somewhere with a cup of tea and a eating cake and, and reading one of them. Now, Back in the day, lots of people had the papers delivered to their door, of course, but that doesn't happen much these days. You usually go and get one from your local shop or you pick one up from the supermarket. Um, and in the days before the Internet and 24-hour news channels, they were a major source of communication about all things that were happening in the world. And what was interesting, I think, about them was the fact that they were written in a variety of styles. There were several different styles of paper that were read by different groups of people. So some of them were written from a political point of view, a particular political bent or whatever. Others were written more from a, an intellectual perspective with a lot of greater detail and background in their stories. And some of them were written for people who like comics with lots of pictures and no big words in them. Now, Matt mentioned last week about the style of Mark's gospel, and Dave Hewitt, who's a friend of mine, wrote a book on Mark, and he likened uh, the gospel of Mark to the, the Daily Mirror, but possibly from a, um, a more genteel journalistic time. But it's got this style that's punchy, it's pacey, it's succinct, it's got bold headlines and a basic story. It's got all the important bits with none of the additional details in it. It's got a certain of urgency about it. And Mark's favourite word, I think, as Matt mentioned last week, is immediately. He uses it 42 times. Jesus did this and then immediately this happened. And he connects things together with the words and then. So Jesus said this and then this happened. And immediately this happened. And, and then he did this and he keeps the headlines coming and he grips the reader without missing important bits out. And he keeps his readers engaged in his message of the good news of Jesus. So when Mark writes his gospel, there's none of the early life of Jesus written into it. There's none of the build-up. There's none of the nativity. There's None of the boy Jesus at the temple. He's straight to the point about why he's writing. The beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus is his headline. The little lead-ins to the story with John the Baptist, like we heard last week, and then bang, and then Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then Mark straight into what happened next with one of his immediately. But I want to pause for a second and, and go back a bit and talk like a slightly different newspaper for a minute and think for a minute about and then Jesus came and what was happening before he did and why John was preparing away in the desert and why Jesus got baptised. See, Matthew in his gospel had some detail about a conversation between John and Jesus where John tries to deter Jesus and says that, that he, John, needs to be baptised by him. Jesus, not the other way round. But Jesus tells him that they've got to do this to fulfill all righteousness. 
Now, John's baptism, as we heard last week, was a baptism of repentance. And the Jews, they had a number of ritual washings that they would perform as part of their ceremonial cleansing practices. But the main full immersion baptism uh, was one that came when a Gentile fully converted to Judaism. At that point, they'd be circumcised like all Jewish males were. And guys, let's face it, you had to know that you were serious about your faith to go through that one as an adult. But then the other thing that happened was a full immersion baptism to symbolise washing away their old life and the sins that they previously brought with them. So when John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to those that had been born as Jews, who'd been circumcised as babies, he's connecting them to the idea that being born a Jew isn't enough. You can't simply inherit faith in God. God wants people with a pure heart, who repent of their sins, who choose to live God's way, who acknowledge their need for cleansing, and are prepared to humble themselves, admit their weakness, and seek forgiveness. And that's whether Jew or Gentile. But I want to think for a minute about this this whole idea of repentance, because repentance carries a number of different ideas in it in Scripture. And firstly, it's a change of mind. That's a key concept in repentance. Look at things differently, it says. Change the way that you think about what you're doing. Look at the world through God's eyes and see things like he does. And then secondly, it's a change of heart. So it's a desire to please God and not ourselves. To put him first. To make a decision to choose to live for him first. Serve him above all things. And then thirdly, is this idea of a washing, a cleansing, a baptism, an acceptance of forgiveness that gives us a fresh start. But then, of course, lastly, there's a change of action, a deliberate choice to stop doing wrong and choosing to do right. And I think those things are important for us, because if that's what repentance is, it's not surprising that John tries to put Jesus off. You see, he recognises in Jesus someone who has no need to repent. Someone whose mind and heart and actions have always been for God. He's got no need for forgiveness because he's never sinned. But Jesus presses him to fulfil all righteousness. And I was wondering why that is, and I think it is because Jesus has come to do something. He's come to preach good news to the poor and open the eyes of the blind, and to set captives free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he's come to do battle with the enemy on other people's behalf, to defeat the powers of darkness, and ultimately to free his people from the tyranny of death and sin. He's heading towards the final conquest over Satan, and his final victory on the cross so that all who repent of their sins and identify with him in his sacrificial death on their behalf might receive the fullness of eternal life in him. So now in his baptism, Jesus identifies with them. He's come to identify with their lowest state. He's come to identify with them in their need for rescue. He's come 
to be their champion, to take on all the hurt and the brokenness of his people and to lead them out of darkness and into his glorious light. This is the good news he's bringing. But it's like him putting his name down as a guarantor for our debts. He doesn't pay them on our behalf until the cross, but he starts out in ministry by having compassion on the poor and the lost. With no hope of paying for their own debts. And he declares that in the future, at the fulfilment of his ministry, he will pay those debts for them on their behalf. So Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Have you ever wondered why he came from Galilee? Uh, I asked the young people that once and received the really obvious reply that uh, because that's where he lived. But why was Jesus living there? Why did he spend most of his life in an obscure backwater town? See, Galilee was known as Galilee of the Gentiles. It's a working class area with a highly mixed population, Jewish and Gentile. It's out of the way and considered far away from the sophistication and the religious centre and significance of Jerusalem. It was considered so insignificant that the Old Testament historians barely even mention it. John's Gospel has the disciple Nathaniel, if you remember, famously asking Philip, Nazareth? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Jerusalem's a place to be. Jerusalem's got the temple. Jerusalem has the sacrifices and the religious practices. Jerusalem has the house of God. It's got the place where he'll put his name. Jerusalem is the place to meet with God. But interestingly, Nazareth is the place that God has been secretly living for the last 30 years. So Galilee, expectation zero. But delivery, top of the spiritual pile. Jerusalem, expectation of salvation but delivery is the crucifixion of the son of god you know we need to never be fooled by expectation or what something looks like the flashiest tombs it said are still full of dead men's bones but the humblest places and lowliest beginnings can yield the deepest spiritual reality Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. He was the friend of sinners and tax collectors. He hung out with adulterers and prostitutes. He cared for the leper and the outcasts. He lived among the marginalised because he came to the poorest and the least. Because that's where the good news is needed most. And when Jesus comes, everything changes. I talked a little while ago uh, in one of my messages uh, about some of my background and, and how my life changed completely when Jesus came into it. And wherever Jesus went and wherever Jesus comes, he brings change. When he came to his first disciples and called them immediately, again, as Mark would say, there was a change. Something shifted and they left everything they'd known and they followed him. Whenever they brought the sick and the lame and demon-possessed to Jesus, he healed them, he delivered them. There was an immediate change for good. 
The anointing that he carried brought freedom and release from the sin and the sickness and even death. The kingdom came when Jesus came. And it still does. But let's go back to Mark's account uh, and see what happens straight after Jesus' baptism. Even as he's coming up out of the water immediately again, he sees heaven torn open and the spirit descending. Now Mark starts and ends his gospel with this idea of a tearing, a ripping. First here, as the heavens are torn open at Jesus' baptism, and later when the temple veil's torn in two as Jesus hangs on the cross. And in both situations he's talking about an opening, a way for us to again fellowship with heaven. Jesus is the one who came from heaven and went back to heaven and bridges the gap between heaven and earth. He's the way. He's the one who made a way for your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as he taught his disciples to pray. But Jesus also telling us, Mark's also telling us here who Jesus is. You see, there's loads of people who were baptised by John. It says that they came out to him in their droves. But when Jesus is baptised, something extra happens. A voice from heaven, the Father, speaks and addresses him as Son. And the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and he indwells him. Now theologians will tell you that this is probably the clearest picture in the whole of scripture of the doctrine of the Trinity. There's the Father, the Son and the Spirit all present at the same time, all fulfilling different roles, all in one place and yet clearly separate. And there's a couple of things that I think are important for us to understand what's described um, as happening by Mark here. And firstly, it's partly to do with the, the language that's used here. And the language that's used by the Father as he speaks from heaven, you are my son, he says. It's a partial quote from Psalm 2. And it's part of a quote that was used in the coronation of the kings of Israel as they took up their kingly office and accepted the role as Israel's leader under God. It was said over them that you are my son. Today I have become your father. And the second part of the sentence, in whom I'm well pleased, echoes the language of Isaiah 42, a passage that relates to the expectation of the suffering servant element of the Messiah as he was to come. It's a statement that here he is, the promised one. And there's one thing else I want to pick up on here, and it's this, that at the point of which Father says, this is my son, in him I'm well pleased. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. (laughs) did you hear that father is well pleased with the son who hasn't even started his ministry I think it's important for us because you don't have to have done anything for your heavenly father to be pleased with you you don't have to have some amazing ministry or achieve some great goal God himself is pleased with a yielded heart even when that heart hasn't yet found opportunity to act And he won't be any more or less pleased with a heart that has acted. Give him yourself. Your yielded heart and Father is pleased. You can't earn his pleasure by the things that you do. Just relax and as we were hearing before, know that you are loved.
and in the second part of this this bit that Mark records here, there's the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word used doesn't mean on. So in the English translation, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. It's meant to give us a picture of what Jesus saw as he received the Spirit. But the, the Greek word is ice. And it's a word better translated in or within. And so Mark creates the sense of Jesus being infilled with the Holy Spirit. This giving is no mere mantle that rests on his shoulders. It's no mere job to do. It's a union, a partnership, an empowering in the inner being for all that he's called to do. So what Mark says here is that at Jesus' baptism, the Messiah is both commissioned and empowered for his ministry. And immediately, there he goes again, battle commences. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for 40 days being tempted by Satan. What a great start to ministry, hey? His first task is to take on a six-week battle with the chief architect of all evil, sin and darkness that he's come to destroy. And he has to do this in obscurity. And he has to tackle this one on his own, although he's ministered to, restored or refreshed in some way by angels, like a fighter getting toweled down and given a drink by his extras in his corner. But you know, if you're ever going to be effective in ministry for the kingdom of God, if you're ever going to do great things for and on behalf of others, you're going to have to learn to battle both the enemy and your own weakness first. You know, whenever I see someone with a truly effective ministry for God, I know that behind the scenes, behind the success and the positive face that the public see, will be a man or woman who's had to spend time wrestling both their own demons and the powers of darkness before they could build what God has called them to. You know, this is really important for us because often we think that when life's tough and we face an opposition and ministry feels like a hard slog and reaching your potential or even doing what you felt called to do by God feels impossible. That's just part of the process. Just because God called you to something does not mean it will be easy. In one of my favourite Bible verses, Jesus promised his disciples that in this world they'll have trouble. In ministry, you'll have trouble. When you try to use your gifting and anointing, you'll have trouble. When you're preaching good news to the poor, you'll have trouble. Whenever you're asked by God to do anything, you'll have trouble. Because you have an enemy who doesn't want you to succeed. But Jesus also gave a word of encouragement. And it was this, take heart, I have overcome the world. And we need to remember that these words are true. We don't face anything that he hasn't already faced and overcome. And with his spirit at work in us, with his anointing resting on us, with his strength enabling us, we can overcome as well. Mark doesn't give us a a dialogue like the other Gospels do of the battle that Jesus faced with Satan. We don't get to see and hear from him what the struggles Jesus faced were and the sneaky way in which the enemy tried to undermine him. All we get is the headline, there was a battle. 
and you might not see other people's struggle and they might not see yours. The near misses and the scars may not be evident, but trust me on this, if there is going to be an effective ministry, if there is success in the kingdom, if there is clear gifting developed, it will have come at the cost. A battle will have been fought and probably still is being, but that's okay. No one ever said this should be easy. If you want to reach the promised land, you've got to go through the desert. So, anointed and commissioned and battle tested, Jesus comes out of the desert and starting in his hometown where a prophet is always without honour, as the scripture tells us. He announces the commencement of his ministry. The time has come, he says. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And for the next ten chapters of Mark, he leads us through the exciting ride that is the outworking of Jesus calling on earth to preach good news to the poor. And he does this with words and he does this with actions. And he does this with signs and wonders. And that's really exciting to me because that's our commission and that's our calling too. To preach and proclaim and to demonstrate that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. You can reach out and grab hold of it. It's time to repent, to change the way that you think, the way that you feel, the way that you act. Time to believe the good news that Jesus has made a way. There's a tear between heaven and earth that allows us to go through by him. There's a way that's been made for us, all of us, all people, to know relationship with Father again. And there's an infilling of the Spirit. An empowering for life and there's an anointing to speak the truth to all. And that anointing for us who believe is more than just a sharing of empirical truth. It's for more than Bible bashing and it's for more than just social action. It's a partnership between earth and heaven. Between the physical and the spiritual. That brings a deep inner conviction and a delivery of a life-changing proclamation proclamation that captures and captivates the hearer. It's an anointing that enables deaf ears to hear and blind eyes to see. It's a marriage between the spoken word that we speak and the advocate for truth who is the spirit. It's a partnership between mortal men and women and the spirit of God itself. And it's exciting. Welcome to the gospel. This is what you're called to do. Full of the Spirit, speaking the word of truth in partnership with heaven itself, seeing good news proclaimed and everything changed. I'm going to finish with this. You know, when Jesus came, he called ordinary people to do extraordinary things. He called fishermen ordinary men to fish for men and when Jesus came and when Jesus comes everything changed and still will are you ready are you ready for the gospel are you ready to stand and preach and proclaim
Church, let's embrace the presence of Jesus by his spirit at work in us and the compassion of Jesus as we experience it and as we look out at this broken and hurting world. And let's be ready to preach good news and see lives transformed by him. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you that you came to the least and the last and the lost and you lived among them and you identified with them. Thank you, Lord, that you've come to us and you've made your home with us. And Lord, thank you that you've given us your spirit to live in us. Thank you that heaven has been torn open and there is a way that we can know you, to come again into fellowship with you and the Father by the presence of the Spirit outworking in our lives. Lord, we want to thank you for the change that you've made in us. Thank you for the word of truth that you've preached to us. Thank you for the good news that you've given. Lord, help us to enter into it fully and to join with you and accept your commission to preach good news to the poor. Go into all the world declaring that Jesus is the way. Lord, help us in all that we do with tenderness, with your compassion, with your power and your conviction to preach good news to the poor. See lives transformed by the power of your gospel. In Jesus' name. Amen.